got your Bibles, um, I hope it's turned to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We want to walk through that um, uh, together. 2 Corinthians, sorry, good call, Andrew. I'll probably do that more more than once today. Um, as I promised, um, probably back in the fall, I'm thinking October, somewhere in there, we put together, uh, actually we borrowed for the most part uh, from another congregation, another church, um, a vision statement and some distinctives that um, uh, we thought would be really help us to kind of focus as a church and, and to know how we're going to grow and, and et cetera. And, and so the vision statement is actually paint, is meant to paint a picture in our mind. Uh, we are building a community f- from all cultures where Christ is king. Let me say that again, building a community from all cultures where Christ is king. And what I like about that picture is that's not a picture. A lot of churches will have a vision statement and it's something that actually is conjured up in the minds of the individuals. This picture actually comes from Scripture, Revelation chapter 7. It's a picture of what the church will be. All nations will gather together at the end of time. Uh, all nation, all peoples from all nations will gather, will be together, will be worshiping King Jesus in one voice. And so... The prayer is that God would begin to do that, uh, whether there's 50 of us or whether there's 100 of us or whether there's 200 of us, that God would build a community from all cultures where Christ is king, where we are submitting to Jesus as king. And so that's kind of the picture. But how do you do that? How does that happen? We seek to accomplish this through five distinctives. A distinctive is something that distinguishes us from others. Now, Let's be honest, I'm, all of these distinctives should be found in every local church. Not that every local church would hold to these or pursue these distinctives, but a, a healthy church will pursue these in some way. They might say it's slightly different, but they ought to pursue these things in some way. But we seek to accomplish that vision through these five distinctives. The first one being truth that transforms lives. That's what I want to focus on today. The second one is a community that displays Christ. The third one is prayer that cries your kingdom come. The fourth one is worship that feeds the soul. And finally, the fifth one, mission that, that um, welcomes all. I want to focus today on the first one, truth that transforms lives. And um, in order to do that, um, I thought this particular text is a perfect place to unpack that. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. What we're going to do this morning is, is very simple. There's four paragraphs in this chapter, at least in the English Standard Version. And I'm just going to follow those four four chapters or for those four paragraphs and then we'll, we'll we'll try to wrap it up nice and tidy at the end and so the first paragraph if you've got your bible there is verses one through three it's a unit of thought and in that in that unit of thought you're, you you'll notice that paul says you corinthian believers are letters are letters of recommendation 
What does he mean by that? It's actually quite an, it's a quite amazing statement. The church at Corinth had all kinds of problems. Paul calls them saints at the beginning of his letter in 1 Corinthians, and then he begins to articulate all the ways how they are being incredibly immoral, disunited, fighting, all kinds of stuff, and, and, and they're anything but a perfect picture of a church. And yet the Lord calls them saints. Paul calls them saints. And in this chapter, Paul says, you yourselves are letters of recommendations uh, uh, written on our hearts. Now, he has, he has said some, some uh, a letter of recommendation in that context. If you were, if you were going to go visit someone uh, and you wanted, to, you wanted them to know who you are and whether they should listen to you, you would, have a, you would bring a letter saying, these people back here recommend me. So you need to listen. Paul is telling the Corinthians, you are that letter. But listen what he says in verse 3. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not, not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. What is Paul saying there? Paul's language comes from both the book of Jeremiah and, and the book of Ezekiel. I'm going to take you to Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. In Jeremiah and in Ezekiel, the nation of Israel had so disobeyed God that God was finally finished with them. They had disobeyed God from the beginning. So they become a nation. Moses gives them brings them the law of God, which we're going to get to. But, but the Scriptures tell us they never obeyed that law. Never. Now, some things they obeyed. That there's moments in history where they obeyed more, but never did they completely obey the law. But finally, God, God said, that's enough. He said he promised that if they obeyed it, they would be receive blessings, but if they didn't, they would receive curses. He, he promised that there would be uh, famine, there would be all kinds of things that would happen, but, but at the end, if, if they still didn't obey, that they would be carried off into another land and become slaves. It's during the, 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 the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel when that finally takes place, and they're carried off into Babylon. And in the midst of that really tragic moment in the history of the nation of Israel, God begins to give a promise of a new covenant, of, of, of what, would, what will happen. And he says this in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them up to the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. As Paul writes to this church in Corinth, he says, this has happened. God has written, the Spirit of God has written, His law on your hearts, you Corinthians. He has given you a new heart. And so Paul says, I just have to point to you to show you that I am a minister of a covenant that you ought to listen to because I can point to you and go, God has done that work in you. Are you tracking? Not convinced you are. In other words... Paul is saying to show that my message is true and you ought to listen to it, uh, we simply point to you. You are our letters of recommendation. Let's just carry on. Verse 4 of 2 Corinthians, that next paragraph, 2 Corinthians 3. Three verses, verses 4 through 6. In this passage, Paul says, I'm confident that we, through Christ, uh, such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. He says, I'm confident that God has written this on your heart. And then he says something, not that we are sufficient in verse 5 in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. He says, this didn't happen because of us. It's not coming from us, it's coming from God. Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, um, in verse uh, 9, Paul says, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So Paul says, Paul's saying, we've gone through so much turmoil, so much difficulty, so much hardship, so much suffering. Uh, it, it, we came to a place where we felt like we were ready to die. We wanted to die. We were so burdened. He says, but that was a good thing. Because that made us rely not on ourselves, but on Christ, on God who raises the dead. In chapter 3, Paul says, my sufficiency doesn't come from me. My confidence doesn't come from me. It comes from God, the one who raises the dead. He's the one who's made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. So Paul is simply saying, I'm, I'm a minister, I'm a servant, I'm, I'm one who's called to proclaim this covenant, this message, this new message. Okay? So he says, you guys are our letter. God has, written, God has written on your hearts a new law. He's given you a new heart. That's what he promised way back then. That's happening in, in your situation at the, in, in Corinth. He says, we are ministers of that new covenant. And I'm confident of that. Not because of our strength and power, but because of God who raises the dead. Now, let's go to the third, third paragraph. Verses 7 through 11. 
in this paragraph, he begins to, to, to uh, contrast the old covenant, which what he calls the old covenant, and this new covenant. And he puts them side by side. He says, now, if the ministry of death, verse 7, carved in letters on stone come with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which has been brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Like, I'm going to admit, this chapter <laughs> is not an easy chapter just to, oh, this is, like, this is easy to understand. It, it, it's a difficult chapter to grapple with, but it's important we grapple with it. He calls the Old Covenant the ministry of death. What is this thing about Moses' face? Exodus chapter 34. Some book in the Old Testament. We have this story. Now, if you you might recall, if not, let me let me help you. Exodus 20. Jeff just unpacked for the children the Ten Commandments. And he did that in a quite creative way. I don't know the fingers. I'm going to have a harder time to remember with the fingers, but maybe that will help some. But those Ten Commandments were told in Exodus chapter 20 that God delivered that to the nation of Israel. And he does that in a way where the, the earth was shaking, the, the mountain was, was on fire, it, there was fire, there was smoke, uh, and then God spoke in Exodus 20. Gives the people of Israel the, the commandments, the Ten Commandments. When that's done, the nation of Israel goes to Moses and says, don't let that happen again, basically. We will die. You go and talk to God for us. Then come and tell us what he said. Because we can't handle this. A and there was truth to that. Why couldn't they? Uh, the, when they were confronted in the presence of God, when they came into the pre presence of God, when God was in their midst, they recognized that they were broken, that they, they, they had to die. That's, that's, that's a natural response for, for a sinner which is each one of us. We can't handle that. In Exodus chapter 34, we have Moses. He's been on the mountain with God. He's received the Ten Commandments. He has them on two tablets of stone. He comes down, and we're told in verse 29 of Exodus 34, listen, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. It was in the presence of God. God was speaking to him, and his face now was reflecting that glory. Listen to the response, verse 30. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Not only were they afraid to be in the presence of God, but they were afraid to be in the presence of Moses, who had been in the presence of God. Don't 
that's what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He calls it the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone. Later he will call it the ministry of condemnation. Why is that? Because if we understand the Ten Commandments, we understand that we don't measure up, that we fall short, that none of us do those things. There, there is probably not a day that goes by where we go, oh, that would be nice to have that, even though we don't own it. There's probably not a day in our life where we don't covet something. When Jesus unpacks those Ten Commandments and says, Thou shalt not murder, He says that if even when we're angry with our brother, if we cuss somebody out that cuts us off, we're guilty of murder. We're all guilty when we read that. It's a ministry of condemnation. It's a, as Paul calls it, a ministry of death, carved in letters on stone. The whole purpose of the law was not that we would go, okay, if we keep these things, then we'll be right with God. The purpose of the law was we can't keep these things, and we need Jesus. So Paul goes on and he goes, For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, verse 9, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. What is the ministry of righteousness? Very quickly, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, Paul will say this, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What is the ministry of righteousness? It's, 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 it's this message that we become righteous because of what Christ has done. Faith in Christ's work. And Paul's comparing this, this Old Testament covenant, which he calls a ministry of death and a ministry of condemnation, uh, a, a, a law that the Israelites would not keep and could not keep, with this new covenant under Jesus, this gospel, this message, he calls it the ministry of the, the, the ministry of righteousness. And he says one is more glorious than the other. In, in 1 Corinthians 15, he describes it like this is kind of glorious in the sense that it's like the, the night sky. It's beautiful and it's bright. But when the sun comes up, this one fades. And this one remains bright. There's more I could say about that, but we're just going to move on to the fourth paragraph. In the fourth paragraph, verses 12 through 18, Paul talks about a veil. Now, he's going back to that story about Moses. Moses, because his face shone so much, he, he, he still spoke with the people, but then he would put a veil over his face. And I don't know if he walked around with his veil all the time. It seems that there's something that he might have done, but then when he would go back into the tent of meeting to meet with God, what did he do? He took the veil off. 
as he turned to the Lord, he would take the veil off and, and he would speak to God. Now it's with that in mind that Paul begins to paint a picture of the nation of Israel. And we could even put ourselves here. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, verse 12, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. It's like they were... they they they. They had the law, uh, uh, but they didn't see what, where, where it was actually pointing to. And, 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 and there was just a hardness that just actually grew over time. And, and Paul then begins to paint a picture that the nation of Israel, um, uh, this veil covered them, uh, it, it covered their spiritual eyes, covered their heart, uh, that they couldn't see where it was going. And Paul says in verse 14, it's only through Christ that that veil is taken away. Verse 15, yes, to this day, this day whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Then verse 16, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. If you forget everything else I said, don't forget verse 16, 17, and 18. Okay? When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Throughout Scripture, this idea of turning to the Lord is this idea of repentance. It's to turn away from the things that I thought would give me life, and it's turning to the Lord, to Christ, as he calls him, and says, he will give me life. When I do that, I'm like Moses who goes into the tent, takes the veil off, and turns to the Lord. The veil then is removed. That's the spirit of repentance. That's, that's when God writes on our heart. Now, continue the thought, verse 17. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. He is just finished telling us that christ is our lord now he says the lord is the spirit and then he says in the spirit where the spirit of the lord is there is freedom he's actually just introduced us to not only god but christ and the spirit carry on verse 18 and we, talking to the church at Corinth, and he includes himself with them, with, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So he says, we take the veil off, we, we, we turn to the Lord, the veil is removed, and, and, and then he says we continue, we're beholding this Jesus, this Lord. And as we behold the Lord, what happens? We are transformed. A powerful word. We're changed. We become something different. And so there is a, a point where there's a turning, but there's an ongoing turning, an ongoing repentance. There's an ongoing looking. 
and we're changed from one degree of glory to another. We become like what we look at. And I said a whole lot of stuff. What does it all mean? The early church, we're told in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, there's certain things that they did. Acts chapter 2, they, they would gather together and we were told they, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What did the apostles teach? What did the apostles teach? Help me out. Let's see if you're awake. The gospel. Absolutely. They, the, the, the apostles, even in Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up to preach, and he, and he actually pulls out it from the book of Joel of the Old Testament, and he talks about how it points to the Spirit and how the new day has come. And then he pulls from Psalm 16, and he says, look, in Psalm 16, David is talking about Jesus. And, and then he pulls from Psalm 110, and he says, oh, there David's talking about Jesus. And then he begins to unpack what Jesus has done. He says, Jesus walked among us, and Jesus, you guys put him to death. But then three days later, he rose. And so the apostles, right from the beginning, what was their message? What was their teaching? Their teaching was the gospel, the good news of Jesus. They taught a person. Now, they would open the Old Testament, and they would show how the Old Testament pointed to this person, but that's what they did. And lives were changed. You read Paul's letters. What's he doing? He's pulling out the Old Testament. And he's saying, this is how it points to Jesus. And he tells him what Jesus has done. And he says, this is what Jesus is doing, or this is what Jesus has done and accomplished. And so... When we talk about a truth, or I, we can look at even 2 Corinthians, several times in 2 Corinthians, Paul says he proclaims Jesus. That's what he does. Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You probably have met those people that know this book so well so well that they can tell you how old Methuselah was. Like a drop of a hat, they can tell you in detail, that's how old Methuselah was. And they can tell you so quickly who the shortest guy in the Bible is, Nehemiah. That's a joke. Oh, yeah, there's a shorter guy. They know the, they know the, the details or the facts of the Bible so well, but do they know Jesus? I've sat under the instructions of individuals who could unpack for me who God is. They could tell me from the scriptures, God is like this, or this is how the church is supposed to function. And they know these things in detail. They have a systematic theology in their head, and they can, they can, just, they can wax eloquently for hours. But do they know Jesus? I've sat up with people who could, could open up the Greek New Testament or the Hebrew Old Testament and they could read it so you could hear it and then they could turn it into English just by just, by just looking at those words. And I'm like amazed. You don't have to use any books to help you with that. 
But my, the more important question for me is, did they know Jesus? In, in knowing those languages, did it help them see Jesus? The Apostle Paul says it's in turning to Jesus. It's, it's in beholding Jesus. It's in looking at Jesus. The, the writer to the Hebrews says, consider Jesus. The person of Jesus who he is and what he's done, the gospel, as Gord has said, is what changes us and transforms us. Sometimes we can read this book and miss the point. That's what Jesus says to the, the people, the church, to, to, the, to the Israelites, the leaders of the Israelites. He says, you, you, you think that in, in reading the Bible you have eternal life. It's those words that actually point to me, John chapter 5, 39. My point is this. As a church, it's interesting, but the scriptures actually say that the way we grow a church, the way we build a church, is not necessarily how well organized we are. Organization is important. But that's not what builds a church. What builds a church is not the building we're in. What builds a church is, is, is not how cool or hip or wonderful our music is. What builds a church? Jesus. And are we beholding Jesus? That person is the truth that transforms our lives. And so when it talks about, when we talk about building a community from all cultures where Christ is king, and we want to accomplish this through one distinctive, simply truth that transforms lives, it means we want Jesus to be flowing off our lips every time we gather together. Sunday morning, the message needs to be about Jesus somehow. Because as you go home and you think about who this Jesus is that you just heard about and you read about in the scriptures, you go, oh my goodness, this is amazing. And you let the word of God, that truth of Jesus, begin to change you and shape you and mold you. The spirit will take that truth and, 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 and do a work in your life and change you from one degree of glory to another. Where you weren't so patient, you'll become patient. And it takes time, but it, it's, it, it's being in the Word. The Word, is, which is all about Jesus. We gather together in our family groups, or even uh, if you gather in, in groups of males or females, or however we're doing it, but this book should be opened. Why do we encourage you to read the Bible on your own? Not so that you can say, well, man, I, I know a whole lot of good things that are found in here. But hopefully as you're reading through it, you're going, oh, my goodness, the story of Jesus is amazing, and, and what Jesus has done is astounding, and it begins to transform and change you. And, and it's not only something that we do internally and just do at home by ourselves. It, this truth that transforms it, it lives is Jesus should be on our lips even as we're, as we're having supper with, with, with our neighbors and as we're working with our coworkers. Does Jesus flow off of our tongue? Do they hear how Jesus has helped you through difficulties? Do people hear about how Jesus has 
has uh, how do they do they recognize that Jesus is the most important person in your life? How He's changed you, how, what He's doing in your life. That truth transforms lives, not just our own lives, but the lives outside of this flock. How will this church grow? How will this community be formed? We are a people that proclaims a truth that transforms lives. I probably shared this before, but just in case I haven't, or maybe you forgot, I'll do it again. I don't know. I think it was about year 2001, somewhere in there, 2002. Um, I read this book. It's a book on suffering. Quite frankly, at that time, I had no idea what suffering was. And I'm not sure if I still do. Starting to learn what pain is like and what, what happens. The title of the book is simply, How Long, O Lord? And I read it, and I read it, and it was quite fascinating. I underlined a bunch of things, but there was a passage, there was the last chapter, some pastoral reflections. And I'm like, okay, I'm a pastor. I should reflect on these things. And he had a bunch of them. They're just... 12 of them, but the 11th one caught my eye. He says, in light that every peop- everybody's going to suffer at some point, he says, above all, we must help people know God better. So that's my job. He's saying, Elroy, your job is you need to help people know God better. He says, to many answers we give are merely intellectual, merely theoretical, merely propositional. And the first half of my message probably sounded that way. Theoretical and propositional. He says, we must so teach and counsel and pray with people that we deepen their experiential knowledge of God. I'm reading this because that's my job, is help people to experience and know God in such a way. And I do that as I teach and counsel and pray. But then he goes on, we must... So get them into meditative and rigorous reading of the Word of God that they draw vast comfort from its pages. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm five years into full-time ministry. I've just finished four, well, I crammed three years into four of seminary. I, I got a bachelor's degree before that in, in, in some religious studies. And I'm like, Okay, I'm equipped. I, I already I've, I know this Bible thing, right? I've I've studied it. But when he said that we that we must so get them, the people of God, into meditative and rigorous reading of the Word of God, I go well. I don't think I'm doing that. What does it mean to read the Bible rigorously? What does it mean to read the Bible in a meditative way? And he's saying if we do that, if, if we do that, that we will draw vast comfort from its pages. So when we hit suffering, it will bring great comfort. And I'm like, okay, I think that's happening. I, I started looking at the life of my parents and my grandparents, and I began to realize that they got vast comfort from the scriptures that they had spent so many years studying and learning when they hit hard times. Maybe I should listen to this guy. I was like, how did it, I don't even know how he does it. So, so I began to Google how Carson does that. He didn't tell me in the book, 
But I began to read, realize that he reads the Bible every year. He has a plan. But not only, I found that to be kind of hard work, actually. To read the Bible is not an easy thing. I'd, I'd much rather read the sports page. Well, some days I'd rather read it. Some days I don't care about it. It depends on how my team's done. That's easy. To open up the Bible is hard. It's work. It's rigorous. And, but then he says we not only need to read it rigorously, we need to meditate, think about what we read. And so I was like, how am I going to do that? And so then I picked up a moleskin and I started going, you know what, I'm just going to write some thoughts out. I'm not going to unpack everything I read, but I'm going to read four chapters a day, and I'm going to, uh, out of those four chapters, I'm going to walk away with one thought that I can think about for the rest of the day and chew on for the rest of the day. And as I've been doing this over the years, I've been going, not only one thought, but now it's more like, how does this tell me about Jesus? How, how does this point me to Jesus? What does this tell me about the Lord? How, how do I behold Jesus so he changes me? Everything Paul unpacked for the church of Corinth. He says, you are our letters of recommendation. It is, it is you that God has written his, God has written on your hearts. But then he unpacks, but now he says, beholding the Lord, the glory of God, looking at Jesus, we're transformed one deg- from one degree of glory to the next. We begin to look like him, not physically, but we become more patient because he's patient. We become more faithful because he's faithful. We become more generous because he's generous. We become kinder because he's kinder. But it doesn't happen unless we look at what the apostles taught us about Jesus. the ones who were with him, the ones who were taught by him. And as a church, in order for this vision to become reality, that's the type of people we need to be. People that hold Jesus before our eyes and hold Jesus before one another and and talk about this Jesus and allow this Jesus to change us and shape us. Let me pray. Lord, there's not a one of us in this room that knows you so well that we can say we've arrived. But I do trust that each of us in this room, I do pray that each of us in this room know you have turned to you and you remove the veil. If not, Lord, I pray that you would remove the veil, that they would turn to you, you would remove the veil. And that with increasing clarity, they would day by day by day put Jesus in front of their eyes. And I pray that we do that for each other. I pray that when Andrew and I go for coffee, that Andrew says, All right, did, let, me, let me tell you what Jesus is doing in my life, what Jesus has done, who Jesus is. May I do that for him. May I do that for Gord. May I do that for each individual. May we do that for each other. 
to be a reality on Sunday and when we gather in other groups and when we just sit down for a coffee together. Lord, may we be that kind of people. And Lord, would you cause that kind of people to multiply and grow? Would that rub off on the people we work with? And may some of them say, I, I want to know this Jesus. And, and may we point them so, and so that they, they, they too can turn to you and the veil's removed. Father, I admit I'm not, I'm not the person that I just unpacked, but Lord, I pray that you'd grow me in those ways. Would you grow each of us in those ways? The early church, they just talked about you, even when it cost them everything. I pray that that would be the truth of us. We're just so in love with you, so enamored by what you've done for us and who you are, that we would talk about you and read and stare into the scriptures because we want to know you better. Because quite frankly, we just love you above everything else. And would you transform us by that truth, by that Jesus? Lord, I can't make this happen, but you can. Would you do this? Not because we deserve it, but because you are good and because you are great your precious name we pray. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. One of those ways that we weekly behold Jesus is by stopping and doing and remembering what he did for us through this simple little meal that he told us to keep. The body representing his, 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 his flesh that was nailed to the cross, how he died in our place. The cup representing the blood that flowed and therefore the forgiveness that is ours if we put our faith in him. If you have placed your faith in this Jesus, you are welcome to join us and remember and give thanks for what he's done.